The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Court TV is covering the murder trial of Theodore Edgecombe, who was accused of murdering Jason Clearman after a road rage confrontation. The incident was captured on video, but does it show a cold-blooded killing or a man acting in self-defense? Court TV's Ted Rollins joins me to discuss the trial so far. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for listening and downloading the Court TV Podcast. This week, we are talking about yet another case out of Wisconsin. You know, through this whole COVID situation, Wisconsin has continued to do trials and has really turned into uh, what I call Court TV's new Florida. Uh, Florida was always um, the state that would have the most cases that we would cover, number one, because it's Florida, but number two, because um, their openness to to cameras in the courtroom, et cetera, and just the interesting cases that happen down there. Uh, but but in the last couple of years uh, here on Court TV, it's it's become all about Wisconsin. And we've got a case out of Wisconsin following up um, the case involving Kyle Rittenhouse. You'll recall Rittenhouse was successful at trial claiming self-defense. So now we've got another case out of Wisconsin where the defendant is claiming self-defense. The defendant's name is Theodore Edgecombe. He was riding his bike uh, on the streets of uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and came across uh, a couple that was uh, coming back from uh, a night out. Uh, the Clearmans, um, Jason Clearman uh, is an immigration attorney. He was in the passenger seat. His wife was driving, and there was some sort of um, confrontation between the two. They're yelling at each other, and it's disputed what's being yelled, but you you know what it's like. There's, it's, it's a little bit of road rage, but one person's on a bike, the other's uh, in a car. Then there's video where you see the car stop at a red light, and the man on the bike approaches, and uh, it, it appears that something might be said again. And the man on the bicycle, Theodore Edgecombe, the defendant, punches Jason Clearman in the face and then rides off. And then the Clearmans in their car uh, follow him. They make a right turn. And then uh, Jason Clearman gets out of the car and and um, begins walking and then picks up the pace and is either jogging or running to confront Theodore Edgecombe. And at that moment, this all happens very quickly. Theodore Edgecombe pulls out a gun, shoots and kills Jason Clearman, shoots him in the face. Uh, and the wife uh, is witnessing this and she's in the car. From the time of the punch to the time of the, the gunshot, uh, it's less than a minute. It might be about 24 seconds, 30 seconds or so. It all happens very quickly. But that's the setup of this story. He is claiming self-defense because Clearman uh, got out of his car and was pursuing him and confronting him. And uh, that's where we are in the case. I want to bring in uh, my colleague from Court TV, Ted Rollins. Ted, um, here we are again in Wisconsin. Um, that's the homeland for Ted Rollins, folks. This is oh, Badger. He's a Badger. Um, so, looking at this self-defense case, following up the the Rittenhouse, it seems that with Rittenhouse being successful, uh, this defendant and and his family very much uh, believe that this is a similar situation to Kyle Rittenhouse. They do. Um, and, and, you know, there, I guess there are some similarities. In fact, they're going to 
they, they are bringing on the same expert that we saw uh, Dr. Black is in the Rittenhouse case, but it is different too. And to me, the, the biggest difference is the defendants. Kyle Rittenhouse is um, young and he appeared even younger than his 18 years old when he was on the witness stand. Theodore Edgecombe is a little older and, and would have a better understanding of the lethal use of a gun possibly. But, you know, the family, that's their argument is that, hey, Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty. He acted in self-defense. Theodore Edgecombe should have the same fate. Cases are different. There are some similarities. And it all comes down to what does the defendant feel in that moment, in that moment where they use lethal force against another human being? Did they really think that they, in their heart of hearts that they could lose their lives? Absolutely. And I think it also comes down to juries looking at this situation. They look at the the entire situation and say, okay, is is that... Is, is that reasonable? Does that seem does that seem right to me that you should be able to take someone's life in those circumstances? So I want to play a little bit of the defense opening statement um, because there are some facts in this case that they have to concede and admit to. And some things that they're conceding to, I think, are being contested uh, by prosecutors, but this is really fascinating and a fascinating approach by the defense. Let's take a listen. The defense in this case will be straight shooters with you. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, Mr. Edgecombe is not perfect. He makes mistakes like any other, any other person. And there's three things that we want to talk about right at the beginning of this trial. Number one, Mr. Edgecombe, at the time of September 22nd, 2020, was in possession of a firearm that he was temporarily restricted of based off of a bill order that he had in other cases. We want to go ahead and get that out at the beginning. That's a fact. You will not hear any dispute about that issue. Number two, Mr. Edgecombe, on September 22nd, did in fact punch Mr. Jason Clearman. And that punch was as a result, and you'll learn in the evidence, as a, was a result of racial slurs that came from Jason Clarence. Number three, you will hear evidence, and it would not be a dispute in this case, that Mr. Edgecombe did not turn himself in, and he was not apprehended until almost six months later. Let's just get that out the way. Now, the state in this case will try to convince you that that was because of consciousness of guilt based off his actions on September 22nd. The evidence is in this case is going to show otherwise. Fascinating. Let me, let me start first. Um, I don't think he did it on purpose, uh, but he referred to the defense as straight shooters in a case where the client is accused of shooting a man directly in the face. Um, I, I just think that's a coincidence. So we'll move past that. Um, but let's, let's start first with he had a firearm that he wasn't supposed to have. And this is different than the Rittenhouse case. Kyle Rittenhouse did not illegally possess uh, the firearm. Uh, the judge ruled on that. Prosecutors alleged it, but the judge um, uh, dismissed that charge. So that's a difference. How big of an issue do you think that is, Ted, that he's carrying a firearm that he's not supposed to have? What, how much does the jury take that into, into the equation here? I think in some regard, Kyle Rittenhouse carrying that assault rifle was potentially more um, dangerous for the defense 
in his case, because people would have the preconceived notion of, hey, you shouldn't have had that. You're, there's no way you should have that gun. Where, it, let's be honest, the, the reason that Edgecombe wasn't supposed to be carrying the gun was because of um, a pending case that might get lost with some jurors of, of not being as a big deal. And, and on the stand, he defended it. He said, I carried a gun at, at night in downtown Milwaukee around this area of town. Uh, because I was fearful of for my safety. And that, I don't know. I just don't know the area. I don't know the, the, the jury makeup, but, but that could theoretically um, connect with a juror or two that says, well, yeah, that, you know, that's a dangerous area that he is around. Um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know the significance of that part of the equation because at the end of the day, um, it's all about why'd you use it, not why were you carrying it. You know what's interesting? And, and this, I think, uh, runs counter to most people's intuition. But if, in fact, he had Kyle Rittenhouse's gun and was carrying it like Kyle Rittenhouse, this never would have happened. This never would have happened. Jason Clareman is not jumping out of the car and approaching someone who is openly carrying a gun. Not going to do it. I mean, I, 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 despite how angry he might have been that he just got punched in the face, I think his common sense would have... Would have uh, would have kicked in at that point, which is why. And and again, people people during the Rittenhouse case were so outraged, and, and especially people from places like New York and, and cities where the gun laws are the strictest in the country. They are so outraged by people openly carrying weapons when the most dangerous weapons are the ones that are concealed, the ones you don't know about. And this is the exact situation where if he's openly carrying the weapon and Clearman knows about it, I don't think we have uh, any further confrontation. I think we have Clearman driving in the other direction, maybe taking a picture with his cell phone and calling police about it instead of getting out of the car to confront him. And pick up for that, we're going with that. If Edgecombe would have pulled out his weapon and pointed it at Clearman instead of pulling it out and shooting him in the head, uh, I guarantee you. Um, whatever Clearman was yelling and saying and doing would have stopped instantly. He would have raised his hand and said, whoa, 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 and gone back into his car and situation is done. But he didn't do that. He pulled it and shot. Yeah. And that's, there is video of all this folks, but it's not super clear because it's from a distance and and the moment of the shooting, um, I think there's going to be some discrepancy about exactly um, what was said exactly how close they are to each other. Um, but let's get to another point here that was made by the defense. Uh, Edgecombe did, in fact, punch Clearman. And then we'll get to the second part of that. But the fact that he punched him, to me, is the biggest fact in this case, the biggest difference between this case and Rittenhouse, because this is the initiation of a physical confrontation. Something that goes from words to now a physical confrontation. And I think that is the biggest problem that the defense has in arguing self-defense is that the physical confrontation between these two men is initiated by the defendant who is claiming self-defense. But what if Rittenhouse would have punched one of the people that chased him down. Let's see, he, you know, he went up, punched Anthony Huber in the face. No, no, no. The punch in this case is before a chase. The, the, the car is stopped at a red light. The, the bike approaches the car. 
And that's when the punch takes place. Right. What I'm saying so is that what if um, when they're at the gas station, the red house doesn't like the look of Huber, he's yelling at him and he pops him in the nose. Now Huber chases him down. Does it, isn't Kyle Rittenhouse, couldn't he still be fearful for his life? Um, because this guy that he just punched is now threatening to kill him and he's chasing him around. Yeah. But I, I don't think you're entitled to self-defense at that point. Let me, let me take it off the streets of Wisconsin, Ted. Let's put it inside a bar. You're having an argument with someone, Ted, right? Ugly words going back and forth, right? Yep. And now all of a sudden, you punch the person you're arguing with in the face, and then you walk to the other side of the bar. The person you just punched in the face, you initiated the fight, right? Right. Does he have to stay there? Can he follow you in the bar and then confront you about assaulting him? Or does he have to stand down? And if he does confront you to assault him and you are all of a sudden now are getting fearful, you're allowed to shoot and kill him? So you start the physical fight and then you're allowed to finish it with a gun? That's the point is where is there a reset? Is there a point in what happened between Clearman and Edgecombe are they two separate events or is there one? And the defense is arguing that after the punch, there's a cooling off period for the clearmans that they did not take advantage of. And they then reset the clock by pursuing him, by taking a right and chasing, in their words, him down. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I get what they want to do. I, I don't know if the jury buys that. I don't know if they buy that as two separate events. Um, prosecutors have to make a compelling argument on that. Um, but it happens in like 30 seconds. And this is the, the, the general problem. Like if you start a fight and you've got a gun, are you allowed to finish it with your gun when the person who you initiate the fight with stands up to you and maybe even, even punches you? What if they even punch you? Are you into, I, I just don't, I, I don't think if you start the situation, you don't get to finish it with a gun. I just don't think you do, and and I don't think juries like that. Can you but- start a, Can you start it though without um, a physical confrontation? Does, can it start with words that are so demeaning and mean that that it, it triggers within the human being a, a a natural reaction to punch? And that's that's another part of the equation. That's why I'm getting to that part of the equation. That's why I broke it up separately because I knew that's exactly where this conversation would go because it's directly related. Now the racial slurs. Um, are the allegations by Edgecombe, the defendant, I believe that the no other witnesses heard these words, these specific words. They heard words exchanged, which, you know, you hear people screaming, but Edgecombe's the only one who's going to testify about these specific words. So as we're talking about Edgecombe, testifying in his own defense, so let's take a listen to Theodore Edgecombe. So when that was done, um, he says, you, you know, he says... As he says, you can can say what he said, Mr. Edgecombe. Damn, you can't drive, get out of the road. And there was an individual on the sidewalk who heard this and seen me get hit. And they're like, whoa, you know, the nerve of that guy. And they asked me if I was okay. I said, yeah, I'm all right. Who is he speaking to? Why is he talking like that? I guess he's talking to me. Mr. Edgecombe, how did that make you feel? I was infuriated. Um, I can't lie. 
um, it brought back the trauma of when I was hit before. And that's all I could think about because I was left hurt in the middle of the street before. And I'm like, what if these individuals would have just, I could have been killed, you know? What if these individuals would have just killed me then? And then they insulted me. So it was like they had no remorse for what they had just done. So here's my, my take on this, Ted. And it, it comes down to, and I know we're, we're in a different place in society, right? Where people talk about hate speech. And this is presuming that the jury believes uh, Edgecombe's testimony. They may or may not believe it. But if they believe his, his testimony, and let's, for argument's sake, believe that he's telling the truth, that there are racial slurs that are, that are tossed at him, um, you're still not allowed to punch somebody in the face. That is constitutionally protected speech unless you are inciting a riot. And, and is there an argument those words are inciting a, a riot? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but hate speech has, uh, it has to be something that would so imminently uh, uh, create a dangerous situation. And I don't think exchanging insults or insulting someone uh, is no longer constitutionally protected speech. I know, I know it's protected by uh, Silicon Valley and big tech, and I know there's a whole generation that believes it should be illegal, um, and yet it's distasteful. It's 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 um, you know it is what it is. We 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 know why we don't like it, but by the same token, is is are you allowed to punch someone in the face? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think if everything stopped right there, Edgecombe would be prosecuted for assault. Uh, that's a good point. It, you know, had this event ended with that punch and the clearmans went to police they got the camera the pole camera and they found out and brought theodore edgecombe in they could have arrested him at, you know for assault the question here is though and this is why this case is so fascinating it's the perception and the reaction to these events from different mindsets and i think jury selection and jury makeup is important in this case there are a handful of african-american jurors and uh, and people don't like race coming into these conversations but let's be honest if what theodore edgecombe is alleging is that these people hit him with the car did not apologize called him a horrible name which is going to cut deep with with people and it's going to be believed more by, I would argue, someone um, of, of color on the jury. And then there can be a, well, um, if I were in that situation, what would I do? I could see how he punches him. Now you get that juror on your side and you extrapolate this out to, why did you run, Theodore? Because I don't trust the justice system. Again, African-American juror, that's going to resonate more than possibly a suburban white individual in Milwaukee County. And, and that's the fascinating part about this case and others we've covered lately, where the same set of facts can be perceived differently by different people because of their different backgrounds and what they bring to the table. Absolutely. Right on. Let me ask you this, Ted, your, your thoughts about, because I want to talk more about her, um, Jason Clearman's wife. She's not white. She's not white. I, I've looked at her in the courtroom and her skin is dark. Now, I don't know. She's she's not African-American, I don't think. I don't know exactly what her ethnic background is, 
but I know the color of my skin and I'm looking at the color of her skin and it is different. So does that play at all in any of this? Number one, the fact that his wife is not white. Number two, the fact that he's an immigration attorney and anyone who has, um, uh, you know, a, a minimal level of common sense knows that immigration attorneys have spent their entire careers helping people to uh, uh, get citizenship and, and legal standing here in the United States. And those people, um, for the most part, for the most part, not, not entirely, but for the most part nowadays for immigration attorneys, they are people of color trying to get to the United States. So d- does that at play at all into the equation when this jury tries to figure out if Edgecombe is telling the truth about him um, using that racial slur. Absolutely. That's the closing argument from the state. It's going to be, do you really believe that this man who's dedicated his life to what you just articulated, who has married a woman of color, is going to um, utter those words that he's alleged to have uttered? And more importantly, that his wife, would have tolerated that in the same vehicle. She was right there. Um, and then that she was lying that it didn't happen. It's That's a huge hurdle for the defense because this is a he said, she said, but the problem are those back facts that you're bringing up about the individual that is now dead, Jason Clearman. It, it makes more sense that he would not be a racist, however, you never know. I mean, when people are angry and, and he was accused of being, you know, drunk, um, they say and do some really horrible things. Yeah, that's the other part of the equation is that the Clearmans were drinking. They were drinking that night. And and I think the jury takes that into consideration, too, in, in trying to understand the temperature and the nature of everything that was, was going on that night. Now, one of the most fascinating witnesses and issues in this entire case is Jason Clearman's wife. She was the one behind the wheel. And she has really, she's testified. And, and coming up, Ted, I want to talk about her because her testimony was uh, fascinating to say the least and um, very different, very different, different from what you would expect from someone who was in that situation that she was in. Um, not only her testimony, but testimony about how she reacted to the situation uh, and then what the defense is doing with all of that. So when we come back, we're going to shift the focus onto the woman who's now a widow who lost her husband, but is also a witness to everything that happened. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. And the evidence is going to show in the other half, Ms. Clearman, six seconds after Mr. Edgecombe runs off, She gets out the car. She runs over to the body. She's not running over to the body as the evidence is going to show to save his life. She reaches down and she tampers with something. The evidence is going to show. It's going to be on video. See, this is the other side of the story. This is the other side of the hand. 
she runs back to the vehicle and she closes the door like nothing happened. Members of the jury, you're going to have to figure out why. That is from the defense open. They're referencing Evangelina Clearman, Miss Clearman, the wife, the now widow of Jason Clearman. And this is such a strange circumstance in this case. And the defense is treating her almost as if she is a suspect in all of this. But she's not. I mean, he admitted, we played where he said, yeah, he, he, he had a firearm. He wasn't supposed to have it. He punched her in, in the face. We know that Edgecombe shot Jason Clearman and killed him. Yet, and I don't know if this is just, you know, kind of like a knee-jerk reaction that defense attorneys have. You always have to blame someone else, that you're putting blame on Evangelina Clearman. But attacking, it took her six seconds to get out of the car. She waited six seconds and then she didn't, she just witnessed her husband be shot in the head. I don't know how long it takes you to get out when you know the man who just shot your husband in the head has a gun. I don't know. Ted Rollins, what's going on here? What is the defense attempting to make this jury believe? What is, how are they attempting to raise a reasonable doubt through, um, the reaction of the widow moments after she becomes a widow. Well, it's difficult because like you say, I mean, let's be honest. She is going to of course stay in the car until she believes it's safe to get out of the car in six seconds is uh, I would argue short. I would, I would have consulted with her and said, stay there for at least 20 seconds because you don't know if he's going to shoot you. And she basically testified to that. She was worried that that could happen. What they're after from her is what we see a lot with people that take the stand. They think it's their job to sway the jury. And she, in her testimony, was, um, I would say, you know, honest on some levels, but sugarcoated everything that was happening around her and her husband. Hey, he only had a couple of drinks. He, um, he, the way that she said that when this confrontation first started between Edgecombe and her husband, that her head, her husband yelled out, what the heck? That's what he supposedly yelled at Theodore Edgecombe. Are you kidding me? No, of course he used more colorful language than that. Did he use the N word? Well, that's what Theodore Edgecombe's alleging. She, by saying he said, what the heck? Um, and that he only had three drinks when his blood alcohol was at a 0.12. She was working. She's trying too hard to to make the jury love her and her husband. When let's face it, we all know what the facts were. They were out drinking, gotten into road rage and probably used every word in the book. But it might not have been the N word. And I think she did a disservice to the state by trying to deflect the way she did. And the defense has jumped all over it there making a mistake, in my opinion, of making her the villain, though, because where's it going? Yeah. Well, I, I, and I get the, the sugarcoating. We've seen that many times. And I think the jury will will use their common sense and understand uh, the situation she's in. But this is this is that one step further where she's doing like like her reaction isn't right. She didn't try to save his life. He was already dead. 
He was dead once that bullet went in his head. The other thing they're getting to, though, Vinny, is that they think that she was grabbing at his pockets to get the knife or to put the knife in his pocket, getting that out there in the um, uh, in the jury's minds, even though there's no evidence of that. There, that's that. That's the other thing that I think is going on here. They want jurors to believe that she was cleaning up, if you will, a situation for her and her husband. So she was um, six seconds after her husband has been shot in the head. Her focus is making sure Theodore Edgecombe, if and when he gets caught and goes to trial, you know, years later, will not be successful with a self-defense claim. That's that's basically what they're saying, which to me is ridiculous. Ridiculous. In that moment, what she's doing and how she's acting, I don't even know if she has control over what she's doing. You, uh, um, She has just witnessed a man take the life of the man who she has raised a family with, that she's been with for 26 years, a man that she loves. And I, I think it's one step too far. Now, the sugarcoating, though, was, was beyond just his words. She sugarcoated Edgecombe's words as well. She also testified that, that he was not using that language. And, and what she said was, basically, she has a filthy mouth, when she talks to people, she uses that kind of language. Uh, but uh, when when describing the back and forth between both parties, uh, she seemed to to sugarcoat it and make it seem a lot less volatile than I think most of us believe it was because we've all been in um, road rage or semi-road rage situations, whether we're screaming to ourselves in our car or screaming out the window. Now, let's let's take a listen to a little bit of her testimony here. Uh, this is her being questioned by the prosecution. I remember trying to dial 911. Okay. And were you able to do so? I was so shaken I couldn't I couldn't do put my six digit number code in there. Your code you get your phone in? Mm -hmm. Is that a yes? Yes. Yes, I, I, I was struggling. I was trembling. I was trying to put my passcode in there, and I couldn't do it. So then I turned to look again at the people who were behind me, and I think I, I, think I walked up to them or ran up to them. I can't recall. And I shouted. I said, can you please call 911? I can't do it. Please call 911. This man just shot and killed my husband. Please. And I remember they weren't, they, they hesitated. They didn't, they didn't start dialing right away. And then I s started screaming, please call 911, please call 911. Why isn't anybody helping me? So there's her testimony. And Ted, uh, her affect was very different. She actually acknowledged it, that at the scene, she was questioning why she wasn't crying. And, and she told the jury a story about her son who had to go through this uh, horrific surgery. And, and she recalled at that moment, she wasn't able to cry either. Um, it was really uh, different. I've never quite seen anything like that before uh, from the witness stand. Yeah, and, and that's just who I think she is. I, I, I do. I believe her. I believe that um, for anyone to armchair quarterback a spouse's reaction to witnessing your 
partner for 20 plus years dropped dead from the bullet to the head. Um, it's, it's, you know, who knows how you're going to react. And, and she was even surprised in how she reacted. But um, the fact, I mean, if you're going to try to use that against her, I think you're really running the risk of offending a juror or all of the jurors because you you see it in video. She didn't kill him. She was there driving him. She witnessed it. It, it had to be horrific. And I'm sure it's still very traumatic for her. And there are moments in the body cam where you do hear her break down for, for a short time, but a lot of the affect and, and the witnesses who were there, some who, who testified in the case also noted her strange behavior, what they deemed as strange behavior. But again, it comes back to exactly what you're saying, Ted. She, she didn't commit this murder. So it, it, it's like the defense is pointing the finger at her, but she didn't do it. We know she didn't do that's it. What's, it's actually kind of scary because you think about how many times uh, people do come forward. I mean, in this case, you had a woman call the detective bureau later on and say, hey, I just want to know that that lady, she was acting weird when her husband was popped in the head. Just imagine all the cases that go on in this country where the that person was acting weird raises eyebrows to the point where they end up in a defendant's chair. It's a good lesson for everybody when you cannot judge people's behavior and, and, and then uh, or, or observe people's behavior and then uh, make that leap of, Ooh, they must have something to do with this uh, because we have evidence that she didn't have anything to do with it. It's on video. You need some other evidence, some other circumstances. So, uh, again, th th a big part of this is the defense s evaluating her actions and what she did and fiddling with uh, her husband's uh, dead body. Let's listen to her take on what she was doing. At some point, do you go back to your husband's body a second time? Yes. What do you do when you go over there? I go over there. And I'm wanting to hug him. I wanted to pick him up. I wanted to hug him, but I couldn't. I knew I couldn't touch him and move him. So I wanted something of his that I could hold on to. And so I grabbed his wallet. Where was his wallet? It was in his back right pocket. His back right pants pocket? Yes. Okay. Did you grab anything from the front? <clears throat> no. Was he laying face down? Yes. Okay. And again here, Ted, I think you're right. The defense is going to try to say she's doing something. There was a pocket knife found in the front pocket of Jason Clearman, but there's no evidence or indication that he pulled out that knife. And then he couldn't have pulled. I mean, if he pulled out the knife, he gets shot in the head. She'd have to go find the knife, fold it up and put it back in his pocket. Right. But why would she do that? And if you are going to grab the knife, why would you put it in his pocket? Why wouldn't you just get rid of it? I mean, I, it don't, it, none of this, none of this. I don't I don't get it. Uh, but, but what's your take on on her explaining what she was doing? at her husband's body when she returned the second time. Well, it, it raises eyebrows, obviously, because it's just strange-ish behavior. But to my point earlier, I, who can evaluate people's behavior in that situation? Now, the defense is jumping on it, and they're saying, all right, she goes over there, gets a look, goes back to the car, and then makes a return trip to the body. So is it possible she goes there, sees the knife in her husband's hand, runs back there, takes the knife, folds it, and throws it in his pocket so that it doesn't look like he's brandishing a knife. Possible? 
I, it's hard to believe. It just really is. They brought up the fact that the knife was never tested for prints or DNA, making it look like it was a shoddy investigation and you may have found her DNA on it, uh, you know, but they're going down that road, whether they're fishing and whether they catch a juror, it's hard to fathom that someone would think that after watching the video, but hey, that's their, that's what they're trying to do. Now, the defense is also attacked, and I'm using that word, they, they are attacking, or you heard the opening statement. They are attacking uh, the widow uh, because she didn't call 911. And again, I don't know what the allegation is here that she doesn't call 911 because she wants her husband to die or because she killed her husband. I, I don't understand it, but it, but it happened again on cross-examination. Take a listen. Is it true that you were already on the phone with someone at the time that you requested that individual to call 911? I don't recall. I don't. I don't recall being on the phone. Okay. With someone named Ivana. 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 I called her after I couldn't call nine one one. Okay. All right. And you you testified before that you didn't call nine one one because you didn't remember a six digit code, correct? I couldn't. I was trembling and I couldn't get my fingers to. I remember the code. I just couldn't do it. Okay. But you were able to put the code in to call Ivana, correct? Afterwards, yes. Okay. I, 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 I was able to just calm down a little bit and then was able to, to okay. call her. And what kind of phone did you have, Ms. Ms. Clearman? It was an iPhone. Okay. And are you aware of a feature on an iPhone that you don't have to put a code in in order to make an emergency call? You know, no. I mean, I know that there's that feature, but I never, I, I just, that wasn't, I, my reaction was just to do the code. I was. Okay. All right. Again, if she's a suspect in this shooting, I get it. I get it, Ted. But she's not. So I just hope that no juror gets hung up by this, this, this 911 issue. Like, she didn't call 911, so something's wrong here, so he's not guilty. That should not be the reason why he's not guilty. That should not be the reasonable doubt in this case, because it's, 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 it's not relevant. It's not relevant to the ultimate. It, first of all, it happens after the shooting, so it's 100% irrelevant to the, the self-defense claim here by the defendant. Um and I just hope, and, and sometimes I guess defense attorneys are just creating issues for the sake of creating issues because it's weird, it's strange, get them distracted. But to me, has nothing to do with what happened here. Yeah, if, if it were allowed and I were in that courtroom, I know Judge Borowski wouldn't have allowed it, but I would have booed when they started going down that road and said, <laughs> uh, well, you know, she's, they're insinuating that she should have used Siri uh, to call 911. Yeah. That is horrible. And I, I think that kind of thing backfires instantly and jurors get disgusted because that's her inability to call 911 to me was uh, made absolute sense. She is in complete shock. She's just witnessed this execution of her husband and she doesn't know what to do. As soon as someone else calls 911, now she knows that's taken care of. Uh, and, and she settles down and calls, settles down. I mean, gets gets to the point where she can call her friend for help. 
this was ridiculous to insinuate that this was sinister behavior, not calling 911. So at the end of the day, what do you think this case ends up being about for the jury? Is, is it going to be about Theodore Edgecombe's testimony and just whether or not they believe him to a, a, enough of an extent that that um, it's a reasonable doubt case where the prosecution has not proven this is not self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Absolutely. This is all hinges on Edgecombe connecting with jurors as he tells his version of the story. And then the uh, instruction that the jury will get, every state has a version of it, where if you have two stories that both make sense, you must go with the one that leads towards innocence. And if they think that his story makes sense, at the end of the day, he's got a very soft demeanor about him. His voice is very, you know, subdued. If he's if he connects, um, he's got a chance here. But the odds are against him, I would think, just given the facts of the case. And the other decisions he could have made from brandishing his weapon to um, not pulling it out or not having it in the first place. Or not punching Jason yes. Clearman. That was another option that he had. He could have just driven to his uh, daddy-daughter date night, which he was uh, on his way to, and picked up the food that was waiting for him. So there were decisions made here by both men. And, and, you know, the real takeaway, Ted, uh, you know, for people watching this trial is road rage never ends well. There's no, there's no purpose to it. You're, you're, it only gets worse, right? Like something happens on the road. Sometimes it's, it's, it's bad purposeful conduct. Sometimes someone makes a mistake. They don't realize it. Anyway, nothing gets resolved by yelling and, and screaming and then taking it to the next level where you, where you leave your car. To me, that was uh, Jason Clamer. I'm not saying that it's his fault, but what I'm saying is when you're in a situation like that, even if you've been punched, uh, once you leave the, your car and you, the, the situation is not going to get better. Like what, what possible outcome could Clearman have had in confronting him other than a physical confrontation where either he gets beat up even more or he beats someone up, or as it turns out, he ends up shot and killed. I, I, I don't see any other outcome there. Yeah. Or worst case star, the one that Edgecombe contends, he uh, pushes Edgecombe down the, the bridge, the Holton street bridge staircase and, and Edgecombe's dead. Uh, and this is the, so a case like this, what do we do as a society? Sadly, we the way it goes down is prosecutors throw the harshest charge at him, and he Theodore Edgecombe is facing the same time in prison as he would if he stalked this couple, walked up to him, and shot him execution style to kill his to take his wallet. You know, this is one of those cases where I think, all right, the dude does 10, 15 years. I mean, Lindley Rennick is gonna do less time than this guy if he's found guilty. And I don't think either one of these men went out that night for this to be um, the conclusion of their evening. Right. It's more of a, a, a heat of passion type argument, a, a little less of a, a mens rea. He didn't plan and plot that this is what go was going to happen. It's not premeditated, um, but it, it's incredibly tragic, incredibly tragic. Well, um, Ted Rollins, you can watch him every morning on Court TV, your front row seat to justice, Ted, 9 a.m. So we never see each other at the office because by the time I'm going in, he's already going home. 
And not like you're not like you're working a short day. It's just I'm on the back end, like uh, 11 hours after Ted starts his shows when I start my show. So, uh, Ted, I appreciate it. I know uh, uh, you're a busy guy. Oh, always a pleasure. Thanks, Vinny. All right. When we come back, I'm going to take a look at this self-defense and stand your ground and tell you why it is good law. It is needed, but it can't be abused. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. So this case involving uh, Theodore Edgecombe is self-defense. Self-defense many times gets confused with stand your ground. They're similar in many aspects, but stand your ground is very specific. It's it, the, These are laws that are created to um, handle a situation before someone has to uh, go to trial. And, uh, you know, stand your ground has gotten a really bad name because people think that it turns uh, states into the wild, wild west. Uh, but it doesn't. And, and what Stand Your Ground actually does is take someone who has um, exercised their right of self-defense and shields them and immunizes them from being civilly sued or uh, facing criminal prosecution. And, you know, every time we have a self-defense case, I look at it and I say, well, was there a Stand Your Ground hearing? But uh, not all states have Stand Your Ground. And... Um, the, the reason that stand your ground and self-defense get a bad name is because it, it, sometimes it gets abused. It gets abused and, and, and defense attorneys, they're doing their job, but it's an abuse of the laws, what I call it, where it's, it's stretched into situations where it's not intended. And we know what the intention of self-defense really is. And we know what the intention of stand your ground really is. Stand your ground. I am in a place where I am legally entitled to be. And I am being victimized by you, and you now have threatened great bodily harm or death to me. I should not have to run away from you. I should not have to uh, exhaust every other means to get out of that situation before I am entitled to defend myself. And we're talking about, at that point, lethal force, deadly force, whether it's shooting someone, stabbing, whatever it is. But I am legally entitled to be where I am. Now, let's let's apply this. And, and, and what has happened is once you have a law like that, defense attorneys will, um, and, and again, they're doing their jobs. I'm not attacking them. They're, they're doing their jobs. But I think it's, it's an attack on the law where they t- try to stretch those situations. And, I, and, and from my perspective, that's what we have in this Edgecombe case where it's being stretched beyond where it should be. Because... Theodore Edgecombe, was he you know, legally entitled to be where he was? Well, he wasn't legally entitled to punch someone in the face. And once you do that, from my perspective, you are shattering your rights to use deadly force to end this situation. Because it's a situation you have created. 
And it's not, it's not legal. You're not legally entitled to punch someone in the face and assault them. And, and that's where we see th this happening, where people who are starting fights and initiating confrontations are sometimes alleged stand your ground and many times alleged self-defense. And why is that? Because they have no other defense. It can, it's not somebody else did it. It wasn't I have an alibi. It's not that uh, I didn't cause the death. All of that are facts that cannot be contested because it's crystal clear. Whether there's 50 witnesses, there's video, whatever there is, that part of the case is locked down. So now you're left with, oh, what's our defense going to be? Uh, Self-defense. So it's like a lot of times it's a defense of, of, of it's the only defense that you can have for those actions. Now, I'm not saying that's the case here in Edgecombe because the, the argument being made by the defense is that it's two separate situations. I disagree with that interpretation, but I get that interpretation. I get it. Um, personally, I do not think that, that, that self-defense, I, I think you, it has to be super clean. Okay, you have to be where you are. You have to be following the laws. You need to be entitled to do what you're doing in the circumstances that lead up to this deadly um, use of force. And that's why when you are the aggressor, the aggressor, the escalator, you can't claim self-defense in my eyes. You can attempt at trial. And what I've seen through the years through the years, in, in cases I've covered on court TV, is that juries don't like that. Let me give you one quick example. Michael Draca down in Tampa, Florida. We covered this on, in, the, in the podcast. You can check some prior episodes. Michael Draca was the self-appointed um, handicapped parking police, right? He wasn't a real officer, but he, when he saw someone park in a handicapped spot, he would go up and confront them. And he was armed when he would confront them. And... He did that one day while a woman was in a car, while her boyfriend or, or was inside the convenience store, and she's in the car with her child, and he comes up and he's screaming at her, in her face, screaming at her, and now has created a confrontation in a situation. The boyfriend walks out and sees this happening and pushes him to the ground, and he gets pushed to the ground, and as he hits the ground... He pulls out his gun and shoots the man who just pushed him to the ground. And the jury didn't buy self-defense. They threw it out. They absolutely threw it out and said, no way. You don't get to start the situation and finish it with your gun. You just don't. And I agreed with that. And, and much like in this situation, uh, I think is very similar to that situation, although the physical confrontation here is actually started by the defendant himself. So I, I don't think uh, when you escalate, initiate, and get physical and make the situation worse, you get to pull out the gun and use deadly force. But the jury may very well disagree with me. And the only way you're going to find out is to turn on Court TV. Uh, we've got our gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of Wisconsin versus Edgecombe going on. Uh, to find Court TV, you can go, um, 
onto CoreTV.com, and there's a Find Us tab. You can find out where we are in, in your neighborhood. And if you have a digital antenna, rescan it so you can find us. We are in 90% of the country, ladies and gentlemen. My show is every night from 8 to 11, where we take a look at all the big moments from the courtroom, all the mysteries, cold cases, um, and legal issues that are in the news each and every night. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Vinny Politan. Have a great week. And don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.